Uh, this is Paul Williams, President and CEO for Project for Pride and Living. Welcome to the Race, Place and Policy podcast. PPL has created this space as a way of engaging with our community on the wide range of issues impacting people's PPL's work on a daily basis. It's our firm belief that the complex issues around race, place, and policy are central to this dialogue, and we thank you for joining us. This month, our conversation is about place and neighborhoods, both the vibrancy and the struggles of the folks who are living there. I'm joined by Shannon Smith-Jones of Hope Communities, a deeply rooted community organization that has been fostering connections and engaging with families and youth for over 30 years, providing leadership development, housing, and a range of community building efforts here in South Minneapolis. Welcome, Shannon. Great to have you here. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here. So I, I actually want to uh, kind of start and, and more just uh, learn a little bit more about kind of your story and want to start by talking about your background and what, what brought you to this work. Um, so just tell us a bit about how you came to Hope Community and kind of where your passion for community building comes from. Okay, I can do that. So um, Shannon Smith-Jones, um, I am um, fifth generation, fourth, fifth generation Northsider. Um, so our family's been um, in the Twin Cities for a really long time. I tell the story often. I actually lived at Hope um, when the Children's Village was built, which is the four corners of the South Quarter, Hope Communities on um, 611 East Franklin. And it started off with um, one of the bigger developments was um, on that corner. And I was one of the first residents there. And I lived with, there with my two sons um, for a year. And that was my first introduction to Hope. And then fast forward, I started um, working in nonprofit work, landed at Urban Homeworks. And one of my first um, meetings was at Hope Community. And I met with Mary Keith and we were sitting there talking and Mary was like, hey, you know, I'd really like to stay connected with you. And Mary Keith and I began meeting probably quarterly. Um, I always say she's my informal mentor. And we did that for many years. And then one day she said, you know what, I'm retiring. And I think you should come apply for this role at Hope. And at this time I was the director of community engagement at Urban Homeworks. You know, you have that feeling it's time to move forward, but I really wasn't sure that an ex executive director role was my my thing. Um, but after some encouragement, I, I decided to throw my hat in the ring and the process really revealed that this was a core place for me to be. And the part of that story of where I lived at Hope, I only stayed there a year and then I moved um, into a duplex that my grandmother owned. And I went from paying, I was a single mom at the time, have two boys and the 700 and whatever dollars a month I was paying was, was, was hard. I could do it, but it was hard. And my grandmother's rent was 425. Mm. And that was her standard rent. That's what she charged everyone. And so I think the passion for housing as a stabilizing force really kind of emanated out of that. And I remember my grandmother, Gertrude Green, saying to me, because I asked her, why do you only charge 425? And she said, well, I already paid for this house. I'm not trying to get rich off of anybody. You have families to raise. I just want enough to make sure that I can maintain things basically. And so to me, that really stuck with me at that time. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. Um, 
Uh, and and how, how long ago did you come to Hope then? How long have you been there? I've been there since 2017, so a little over six years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just say a little bit about the Hope model, because it's, it's, it's not just a housing organization. It's not just a youth development organization, but just talk about, you know, kind of the, the overall model of Hope. Yeah, you know, Hope was um, started in uh, 1977 by some radical nuns, as um, many organizations were started um, by, and it started as a shelter. And at that time, they knew that the families weren't the problem. They kept coming in and out of the shelter, but the systems were more of the issue and that the families really um, knew what they needed, but just didn't have a, a mechanism of doing that. And so... Um, there was a vision of creating housing that would stabilize community and that would be affordable for folks who wanted to live in community, right? And so that has since evolved. Um, Hope now is has close to 300 units of housing. 75% of that is affordable at 50% area median income and lower. And it's been the stabilizing force. And we have this idea around placekeeping, right? That which is really an anti-gentrification mechanism, but we do that through listening and like deep listening. The stuff that we're doing is really a reflection of what community has aspirations for. And we don't consider ourselves a service model, but a model of community building. So we have a mural prop program organizing through art, art of radical collaboration. We have our Best Buy Teen Technology Center. We have 7,500 square feet of community gardens for food justice work. Um, we do organizing in the park through Parks and Power. Um, so we have all of these things that are really to equip community, um, community ownership programs. I know I'm missing something else, but really is around what are the things that people need um, and the tools that they need to help them um, be agents in their own lives. And that helps them make the choices um, for this, that's best for their families and best for them with the option of staying in a community that they love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and again, the, one of the things I think is so powerful, always has been, as in the many years that I've worked with Hope, including Mary Keefe and others uh, uh, that, that, preceded, uh, that preceded you, um, is that focus on deep listening um, and, and viewing engagement and organizing and listening and connection as the driver of the work. Um, and, and it's not that, okay, we want to build X number of units of housing, or we want to build a teen tech center and serve X number of youth. It's about let's listen, engage with the community. And we'll let, we'll let the, we'll let community voice take us where we, where we need to go. And, and I, you know, I very much, I, I've been a, an admirer and a believer in that model. And certainly it's something that we at PPL, I think, have emulated here, certainly in recent years, as we have committed ourselves to equitable development. And not coincidentally, we were founded by a, a radical former priest, uh, Joe Salvaggio. Um, and, and a lot of that early work, actually, that Joe did was about organizing. It was organizing against the Vietnam War. It was organizing around social justice issues. Uh, and it was, uh, I mean, Joe literally moved into the neighborhood and said, let's start, let's start rebuilding, you know, one house, one person, one neighborhood at a time. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of parallels and, and obviously, uh, you know, our work, uh, we aren't probably here, um, 
without the learnings that we've taken from you all at Hope. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, gentrification and displacement uh, and, and the role that um, that listening uh, and the, the HOPE model plays. Can you just say a little bit more? Because one of the things that, that communities worry about is, well, when they start building new stuff, right? And when, when they start, when the new housing starts to come in, th that, that's not going to be for me. And new people are going to come into the neighborhood and I'm going to be displaced. That, that worry about gentrification. Can you just say a little bit more about how HOPE thinks about that and, and works to to mitigate that. Yeah, I think that's always a concern and sometimes they're they're right, right? The things that are built um, don't necessarily lean towards the residents that are currently living in that community. And so part of the way we're thinking, like the food justice work is being attached to the land. It's really around placekeeping, being able to grow healthy foods, being able to do these things that are not, are healthy for your body, but also helps you you know, cut costs, right? Like there are things like that um, and being connected with one another and building those relationships. So when you're in the garden and you're talking about things and there's stuff going on in community, you're actually able to talk with someone else, right? And you start building that group of folks that, hey, did you know this thing is happening? We want to lend our voice to that, right? And then we have other avenues for people to tap into um, organizing through art. We were very um, lucky to partner with PPL with the mural on the Ave, and it was really a long listening session. It was a session of listening to the hearts of community, the um, understanding their fears, understanding their dreams, and then sketching out something and saying, does this reflect what we heard? And then when they came back and said, well, this part does, but this doesn't, doesn't, they adjusted it. And then collectively, created this beautiful mural on the avenue that is reflective of the people that live in community. And so when you see murals that reflect the people that live in the community, that's part also part of placekeeping, right? It is anti-gentrification in the sense of we have a voice, we have a vision, um, we're here. And it allows this um, pride to seep, seep into community in a way of actually we have a voice that we can lend to. Um, and I think about it with our young people around um, their advocacy for themselves and the things that they want. Um, when George Floyd was um, murdered um, in Minneapolis, our young people came to our leaders and said, we're about to organize a march at the Capitol um, and we're letting you know, but we need your support. We wanna be able to um, take a video of this. We wanna be able to do these things and our, our staff showed up and they had a, a huge, huge um, show out at the Capitol. So part of it is like, hey, you have agency. And so the community building aspects, the housing is affordable. We wanna be able to control the land enough that people who want to be able to uh, afford to live in community can, and then create community building things around that, that give agency and tools for people to advocate for themselves and stay and have choice of staying where they want to stay or going where they want to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, powerful examples. Um, it, it just, uh, when I think uh, about the impact that you all have had over time, I mean, I distinctly remember, you know, when I was working in one of my previous jobs in Minneapolis in the early nineties, if you drove out Portland 
Avenue coming out of, you know, going south out of downtown Minneapolis, number one, everybody was going about 70 miles an hour because nobody wanted to get stuck in the at the light at Franklin and Portland, right? Uh, and if you remember that intersection, all four intersections, two abandoned gas stations, one just completely grown over abandoned uh, corner of the intersection, and then one had a giant where that where your headquarters building is had a giant uh, 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 billboard uh, at, on the ground. Uh, yes, yes, and and, <laughs> and when the car you lot. At, yes, when you look at it now um, and you see those, you know, one four very interesting and and attractive buildings, and you see some some you know childcare space and retail space and. And then you keep going down the block as you're going down Portland and you see the number of, of duplexes and single family homes that Hope has built. Again, that's all bricks and mortar stuff, but but it's a vibrant place. And the people there are vibrant. You know, my question there is, how do you kind of measure results um, at Hope? What When you think of results, what is it that you point to? Well, I appreciate the reflection on what we've done. And I think one is when you look at what's happened on Franklin Avenue in and of itself, the investment in place in people that were there gives almost a safety mechanism for other people to say it's okay to do business here, right? What happens with gentrification is other people are coming in and investing and in, you bring outsiders into community versus investing in the people that are already there and giving them the opportunities. And part of that is a, is a big piece. I think the way we think about is longevity, how long have people stayed at the um, stayed in housing? Um, and I, I wish I could, I should be able to, you know, shoot that statistic off. But I know like in one of our buildings, one of the ones we've actually struggled with um, for folks coming out of long-term homelessness was there when we bought the building and are still there. And so like there's there's things of longevity and how people engage. Um, I think about qualitative points, right? When COVID hit, our, we're so connected that it wasn't, we didn't weren't missing a beat. To me, I think about those qualitative ways of staying connected with community and how tightly bound we are with community that we're understanding what's going on and that listening can happen in real time for us to pivot and respond to. Um, we are a destination point. I was just looking at um, some of the young people that are coming into our technology center. I had um, someone coming from Fridley. I had some North Minneapolis young people. Um, I think about our home ownership stuff and that people are coming to hope that live outside of community. And so we always say we're um, community-based and place-based, but not relegated by place, right? And so we have a, um, our mural program's been going on. This is our 20-year mm. um, anniversary of doing murals in community. And we are continually um, engaging new new um, community leaders and cultural holders in this space. And we keep getting asked to come back. Um, I measure it by um, the, the tables that we're asked to be at and the expertise that we hold um, and how people look to us for certain things. And really in listening, when community tells us that they don't want us there or need us there, then we need to continue to listen to community 
in a way that is meaningful and we're not always going to do people here listening and we don't always just do what everybody says, right? Like it's really around just this collective response of how do we problem solve and dream together and, and being considerate of those in the spaces and making sure that people belong and feel like they belong in the space. And there's so much diversity and richness when I walk into the building some days of the different levels of culture, the age differences, um, all of those things. And to me, where people want to, people don't go where they don't want to go. We have social media, we have all these things. Every day, young people are showing up. Every day, people are coming to show up to garden. People are coming to our community ownership classes. You know, people are still wanting to live in our buildings. And to me, being that space where people feel safe to have voice is, um, are the data points that I I hold most precious. Yeah, that's really rich, and and uh, and I, I I I couldn't agree with you more about the uh, importance of all those pieces. Um, and and your your description of of all the investment that has been put into the people here in in this community, and and certainly down Franklin Avenue as well, including PPL's investment in in the avenue and and the the investment of of our native communities um and 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 many others um and, and there's no doubt that that has been transformative again in the early 90s 95 the year of murderapolis you know franklin and franklin chicago was really ground zero uh for a lot of that some really hard times um in terms of crime safety violence drug activity gang activity um a lot of shootings um and 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 a lot of disinvestment um in in that community um i think we've made notable progress here but you and i both know and you and i have spent time talking about it ain't over we still have challenges we still have disinvestment we still have significant issues around safety um, and, and I'm, uh, you know, as we kind of approach summer, which is always kind of, we, we get these spikes again in that activity. Um, um, and, and you and I have been part of some hard conversations with, with our city leadership and with the police and others trying to get more attention and coverage over here. Co can you just talk about, you know, kind of how your and we are, are, are working on safety and, and your concerns about it and how you still see it playing out in the neighborhood. The world went through something when um, COVID happened and the murder of George Floyd happened. And we, we watched that play itself out in our neighborhoods and in the streets and um, the trauma that incurred after that um, is still ever present. And with that, we have, you know, this, this um, polarizing relationship with the police and community. Um, and it has manifested itself in housing in a, in a really severe way. I would, I, I've been saying, um, I believe the, the, the affordable housing system was um, never a great system. 
And I don't mean it to, to take away from all the wonderful things that it did, but the way it's funded, the way it's layered is not the most efficient way. And the assumptions that were made when the system was built are not assumptions that prove true today. And when our community safety is lacking and people are in crises, and we have mental health and we have all these other things coming to play. It shows up where people live and we have un, the unhoused continuing to grow. And so the safety concern is that the way this, our, our system set up, it's not set up for us as developers to handle community safety, right? Community safety, we used to be able to rely more heavily on our city structures, our county structures. And now what is happening is the, the dollars that we have used to support our people in housing for, you know, you guys have job placements or navigating or, or um, supportive housing are now being used just for security, right? And, and trying to make sure that when people choose to live with us that they can have a dignified, safe experience. And, the structure does not allow for us to continue to do that without at the expense of something. And um, it's, it's enraging to me that I, I believe community development has benefit and supported developers in a way that it doesn't necessarily always support the people in the same way. Mm. Right. And I would love to see it shift so that like, we know we have dollars out there, but we don't have the right bucket for us to address this thing that we need right now. We don't have the nimbleness um, to say that we need to re we need to move this from this bucket to this bucket in order for us to address this issue that's showing up, not just in housing it's showing up in public transportation. It's showing up and it's showing up all over the place. Right. And, so the things that we have done is we we brought in security. Um, we're 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 talking in coalitions. We're we're working with you all, trying to get legislation moving. Um, we're trying to be innovative about approaches in the future of what. Because I'm really concerned, Paul, um, that the way things are built right now, and how it's structured, is not going to sustain us in the next five to ten years. And we have to shift something like now. And you and I, and some of the other um, housing developers know this because we're, we're feeling it qualitatively every single day. My concern is often the things that we need to put in place, whether it's government or funding, follow quantitative data, which is a lag. And I feel like there's an immediate need. I feel like there's things that may be hemorrhaging in the system that need some immediate attention and I don't think there's enough resources going to it. Well, and I, again, I, I think you're right on the money with that. And again, as you and I have been talking about it and just for folks listening, I mean, the, the reality of this is, you know, street criminals, street activity, uh, uh, impacting the folks in, in our buildings and the folks who live in our buildings. So, so, you know, gun violence, uh, uh, you know, impacting our buildings, literally bullets coming into windows, um, street level of uh, uh, drug activity, afraid to take your kids outside, uh, literally afraid to take your kids outside. Um, 
squatters, uh, squatters, homeless uh, uh, residents, uh, folks, you know, riding the bus systems and 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 uh, uh, public transportation, and then um, getting off. We have a, we have a building over in St. Paul after University Avenue, right next to a, a, a transit stop that uh, that is const every day battling squatters getting into the building. Um, and so your point about having to divert resources to try and mitigate that. Again, we've doubled our security personnel. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in off-duty um, police uh, 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 contracts and coverage. Um, I, I wanna come back to this. I mean, one of the things that I think is really uh, profound is the way that we have come together in coalition uh, here on the South side. And I know there's work going on on the North side as well in Minneapolis and similar work even in St. Paul. But um, but I, I wanna just ask you, I mean, what makes for effective community safety? Um, and 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 some of the some of the the tools that we're using in that coalition, I think, um, are are part of the answer to that. But what what makes for effective community safety? What kinds of things do we need to see happening? Well, I think we really need to. I think this is one of those times where we really need to listen to community, right? Community knows what it needs. It just sometimes needs to be resourced. And I think some of the tools that we're using is using. Um, community folks that are in the space um, to be able to come in there and, and show up and be a presence. Um, those things help, but we all have to be on the same page collectively. And I think when you say we're trying, right, because we're doing it and it still, it feels like not enough, right? It's not enough because we're not able to completely mitigate um, the issue and create a safe environment. But there's so many things that are happening that aren't being addressed. People are having mental health crises and the resources there are not there for people to manage what is happening in the world right now. We've experienced loss that I don't think I've experienced in my lifetime in such a, like such a numbers. We've, we were there to witness our city burn, like literally, right? Was on fire and there was no one <laughs> showing up. I remember walking down Lake Street and seeing spray paint, like, please don't burn, there's children upstairs. Right, like our our families lived through having to come home to a boarded up building. That does something. And then there's the, the jobs and the schools that are like on one day, off one day. So the folks that are working those hourly jobs, like it has an impact. And so how do we get on the same page to talk and address some of these other things? Cause it's not just housing, everything isn't in a silo. Housing is part of it. Uh, mental health is part of it. Um, making sure our kids are safe and have somewhere to go is part of it, right? And so how do we um, break out of the silos? And, and PPL has a wonderful approach of being holistic in it, but how do we continue to be holistic and think about the whole family piece? And I think that's a big piece of the community um, safety. Um, we also have to, you know, the city of Minneapolis has to, you know, whatever the approach is going to be, <laughs> um, we need to be consistent and know that we can call them and that people are feel safe calling them and that they're not scared to call them um, because they're worried or concerned about what might happen if the wrong person shows up, because that's real. Um, and so um, 
I think there's many things, but I think the biggest thing is really around listening and understanding what people need and figuring out a way to resource that. Yeah, yeah. The, it was just so interesting. And again, this, this goes back to, you know, again, the the riots and, and you know, post-George Floyd, uh, those days following that. In the, in the week or so after um, George Floyd's murder, we, we actually reached out and talked to a hundred plus of our residents and, and said, what, what do you, what, what's going on? What are you thinking? And, and what do you, how, how should we be approaching safety, uh, you know, for, for you? Um, and the, the overwhelming message was one, we want more police coverage and we want different police coverage, right? We want both more and we want different. And, and what they were talking about was, was an engagement. So, so the old phrase, community policing, right? Where we, where we actually use engagement as a primary tool for policing work. And one of the things that came out of that was PPL actually with our off-duty police, many of whom are quite good and are quite connected to our residents. We had we, we came up with just a, a, a contract, a one-page contract that laid out our expectations for how we expected the police to engage with our residents. And all of our off-duty officers signed that. And it talks about getting out of your car and going and talking with folks when there isn't a crisis um, and, and engaging not just policing or, or engagement as a, as a, as a component of policing. It was really, it was profound. And, and um, you know, to this day that that's still in several of our buildings is still an one of the tools. The other piece that you mentioned was, was using community resources in that South side coalition were, were contracting with, I think a couple of different um, black run nonprofits that are, both safety and security firms, but they're also more of an engagement tool. Uh, it's a little bit of kind of street intervention, having them walk the neighborhood, having them walk the buildings, um, we think has made a difference, even though there's still a lot of work to do here on Franklin Avenue. Um, again, that's, that's community policing. It happens to be with other entities. Um, we're also using black owned security firms. Yes. Uh, in some of our buildings, um, which, again, we think has made uh, a, a difference. So um, and we did something similar and spoke with our residents and they had a small caveat to what around the police. They liked the off duty police officers that were there, but they weren't able to call them. So yeah. they were like, when we call, when we need someone, we want y'all to sh you want we want you to show up. And if we have to call 911, we're not certain that you're going to be the one that shows up. So they had built really good relationships with the off-duty officers and, and they wanted them to be the ones that would show up. And that's not, that wasn't always, that's not always the case, right? Yeah. But yeah. I definitely, those things have made a huge difference. And I think comfort um, and also being able to kind of mitigate um, the fear and the uncertainty between um, community safety officers or the police, and it serves as a, a somewhat of an equalizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, we keep coming back to this phrase, community engagement. Yeah. <laughs> community engagement as a way of doing business um, in in multiple dimensions. Um, can you just say a little bit more about what what you know? What do you think? What what more does the broader region and community need to learn about engagement as a way of doing business? That what 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 are what are your tips for the rest of the community? Uh, in terms of community engagement, uh, kind of as this tool, I, I don't. I'm not sure who coined this, but don't do nothing for me without me. Mm, yes, you know. And so the, the engagement piece is really relational. It's just about building relationships and understanding that if I'm building something and I'm like I'm building this for you, and then you're like, why don't you want to live here? And it's like, well, because I actually have you know, four kids and the one bedroom doesn't work, or I actually have these things like who's in community, what do they need? What are they shopping for? Um, what are they eating? Like all of those things help know better. Like this is how you create a thriving community, right? You have the resources and the things and the amenities that actually fit the people that live here, um, not the people that you want to come here. And so I think there's something around community engagement isn't a survey. It's not the checkbox um, that often happens. It's really around knowing each other and being able to um, disagree, right? Um, able to um, bring things to the table and everybody might not walk away with exactly what they want, but there's something around being listened to mm. and being heard um, and knowing that your voice was valued in a process. And I believe deeply that we do better when we're really thinking about designing things or creating things that actually are going to benefit those who are already in place. And when we really think about the Phillips community is the most diverse community in the state, I believe, mm -hmm. right? You have everybody there in this community. And when we really think about building something or creating infrastructure that everybody feels like they belong in, that's just beautiful. Hmm. And we won't know that unless we talk to people. We won't know what is exciting for them or where they want their, where their kids feel safe at or the type of things that they want in their grocery stores, or we don't know those things unless we're actually engaging in them. And I've heard way too many times in the past and sometimes now, like we built this thing for a community and they don't like it and they're not even using it. And it's like, well, who did you ask? Mm. Who told you to come build this? We didn't even ask for this. Um, and now you're upset that we haven't used it. And then they'll say, well, we've invested this much money in your community and it's still where it's at. And it gets used against us when people don't engage and actually know what the community needed. It actually gets used, like we've invested in you enough, but you've actually invested in things that nobody asked for and mm. nobody needed. Yeah. Yeah. And so engagement is really around understanding what the need is and how to really create the spaces so that we can be in community with one another and people both feel as if they belong in the space mm -hmm. and have things that they can tap into um, and that they're not having to leave the community to have those needs met, right? And I think that's really important and that we're a destination place also for other folks because they feel like they belong here as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, just looking forward, um, you know, what what do, what do you see um, for hope in the in the coming years? What what kinds of things are you all aspiring to and hoping for? Oh, there's so many great things. Um, I think our young people one is just huge. Um, our our technology center, um, Best Buy Teen Technology Center, has given tools for our young people just to display their brilliance in a way that is so hopeful and so exciting. And um, we were able to bring on two young people that have aged out of the teen center as part-time staff and just being able to see that building out entrepreneurship um, opportunities for them. I think the idea of building on what we've done in a way that community can tap in and just like expand and have choices in a way, whether it's home ownership, um, you know, we have um, 628 Franklin, um, which has been a vacant property on Franklin Avenue for I think 20 plus years that we're gonna um, be able to partner with City of Lakes Community Land Trust with um, ownership possibilities. And so really just um, being able to continue to think innovatively, can, continuing to put people at the center but the things I think excite me the most is thinking about um, all these avenues our young people can go, go and really the community ownership model around how do we um, equip community with the tools to own in a way that may not always be conventional, whether it's a cooperative, whether um, it's the condos, whatever that looks like, whether it's on a land trust that we're finding inroads um, the, the multifamily homes, owner-occupied um, land trust model that we've been talking about, Paul, around getting um, duplexes and fourplexes back in the hands of community members um, being owner-occupied. Um, I, I get it really excited about that space. And I just, I believe in um, the folks in our community. I just really do. And when we're no longer being extracted from and being poured into um, it, it really creates a big difference. And we both watched it in our work. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish everybody had a front row seat to that so that they could really see how transformational it can be. Um, and, and if they're thinking about it in their own lives, um, for those that have been successful, people poured into them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They invested in them, they invested in their communities. And when that happens, people do well. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the 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 name of the organization Hope is aptly <laughs> aptly uh, uh, appropriate there, and and um, really again just appreciate your work and and appreciate your leadership there, Shannon, and your partnership with us here uh, at at PPL. Great discussion. Um, so thank you, and thanks to all of our listeners uh, for for joining us today. I'm Paul Williams from PPL, and this has been the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. We'd love to hear what you think uh, as well. Uh, So drop us a note at communications at ppl-inc.org. And we hope you'll subscribe and sign up for notifications uh, from wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can always find us on our website at ppl-inc.org. Until next time, wish you uh, peace and and, uh, strength. And um, thanks for joining us today. Have a great day. 